and welcome to the RPG PodQuest, a show that's not only about RPGs, but also is one as well. I am your host, Evan. And I'm your other host, Will. And uh, today we are going to be tackling some new quests and just sharing some games that we've been playing, maybe on our way to our quest topics, but also just uh, some new stuff that we've been playing in general. So, Will, how how have you been doing? I've been doing good. I've been playing so many games, Evan, you would not believe. Oh, you probably would believe, because I'm I'm sure you've been playing a lot of games, too. But I've been playing more games than I believe. So it's been an exciting time, and I've been playing like lots of little pieces of games, more than diving into one. Like, I I normally play one game and play it nonstop, and then move to the next one, but for some reason recently, I just, like, want to play everything at once. So I'm getting nowhere in games, but I'm playing lots of them. So whatever that's worth. (laughs) Uh, Well, I have been following your Twitter, and I've noticed that you've picked up quite a few games. And on one hand, I'm like, oh, these are a lot of games that I like. And I was like, what is the common theme Hmm. here? And then I looked back at our show notes, and I was like, Hmm. oh, right, Uh, you have a very specific quest this week. So we are definitely going to be talking about that uh, a little bit. But is there anything in particular uh, that you've been playing that's relatively new recent that you wanted to talk about i'm playing a lot of older stuff actually i think looking at my list here but um, i did try out the tales of arise demo briefly which i want to talk about a little bit later when i get into what i'm playing but before we get into that how are you doing I'm doing pretty well. Uh, You did say that you've been playing a whole lot of games, and I wish I could say the same. I've actually been super busy this week. Uh, I managed to sneak in a couple of games uh, just over the past few days, but I just finished a a very big apartment move, so that was a lot. Uh, And I also am... Gonna be honest, I struggled a great deal with my quest this week, so... It's going to be a really fun topic to tackle in a very special way. So I hope you're looking forward to that. Okay, interesting. I'm definitely looking forward to that. And happy birthday, Evan. Today's Evan's birthday. That's right. We are recording this on August 28th, 2021, which is a day that I was born on many years ago. I'm not going to specify how many, because this birthday makes me feel particularly old. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say about that. One of the big ones. Uh, Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess. Let's just say I feel like I've got no no landmarks to look forward to after this. So. Oh gosh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> Especially because I'm pretty sure I'm older than you. Uh, but. Land landmarks in terms of birthdays. I've got a whole lot of other stuff to uh, to look forward to certainly. Um, but good, good. I I guess we should get right into it. Will, thank you very much for the the birthday wish, and uh, I'm I'm hoping that for the remainder of the day, it's actually. I know last last time we recorded the weather was not too hot it's also not going to be too great today either so i might spend some of my birthday indoors playing some some new games or maybe just uh, breaking into my new quest but why don't we get into some uh, new games or things that we've been playing so i am really curious to hear your thoughts about the tales of arise demo will i'm not really all that much of a tales fan i again uh, when we talked about strategy games last week, I backseat watched a friend play through Fire Emblem in college, and I also watched him play a whole lot of Tales of Symphonia. So that's really the only game that I have familiarity with. But why don't you tell us a little bit about Tales of Arise? 
Yeah, so that's kind of my background with Tales too. I haven't played a lot of them. I did play a bit of Tales of Symphonia as well, like maybe five hours back in the GameCube back in the day. Okay, wow. And never, I just never really got into it. And then I picked up Vesperia, Vesperia again when it came to Game Pass, mm -hmm. and I played it, and I picked it up and put it down three times, and I liked it the last time I got into it and want to continue, but I just don't put in a lot of gaming time on the Xbox. Mm. So I was curious to try Tales of Arise because... I was enjoying Tales for the first time, really, with Vesperia, and I was curious to see this like more modern look to the series and what would happen. So I dove into it, and it looks really cool. <laughs> and But I was really curious just to see how battles worked, if they'd really changed that as they modernized it, because I think part of what kind of turns me off about those games is that it feels really action-packed and in-your-face, but there's so much like start and stop between like getting into a battle and getting out of a battle and it loading up a separate screen, which I don't really mind in turn-based games, I think. But in more action-y games, it bugs me and it kind of throws off the flow. So I was playing it and curious to see how that went. And it was a bit smoother than in other games. And I think the battlefield looks a bit more like the kind of overworld. But you still do transition into the battle. Really? And then when you get into the battle, it felt really smooth and fluid and fun a lot like east kind of combat okay but it did kind of throw me that you had to like load up that battle screen and then get in and out of it and it it felt like really slow since i had been playing a bit of east 8 before that i was just like oh it feels just like east but looks really pretty and <laughs> clunky and slow yeah that's that's surprising i would think that one of the priorities of that series kind of moving forward would be to make battles kind of seamless. Looking at footage of the game, which again, I would say that all the trailers that I've seen for this game look really gorgeous and the art style I think is is pretty impressive. It's still very anime style. I, I, the, mm -hmm. the character designs are still cartoonish in a way but the the environments look a whole lot more lush and and realistic but it's fascinating to me to see that they're modernizing in in like a graphical uh, respect but they're still kind of keeping that old uh, gameplay because to me when i think of of modernizing games uh, in a lot of ways or updating the graphics making things look more realistic. I think that's to appeal to a broader audience, but I do think that that mm -hmm. transition screen is kind of an archaic design choice. So that's a surprise to me. Yeah, and I, th I think they streamlined it a bit. It feels like near seamless, I would say. Okay. But near is the key here. Okay. <laughs> like there still is a little transition. All right. And you said that the, the combat reminds you of East, which is surprising to me. One of the things about Symphonia that I think thought was neat and i i did toil around with a little bit is that game specifically does have co-op combat so i did get to try a little bit of the combat out and i know that symphonia in particular and i'm not sure if this is the way with vesperia 2 is very linear in terms of movement like you are really it's a 3d environment yeah. but you're on a on a, yeah. a 2d plane which i found kind of weird I know that the movement is more freeform in Arise, and more of the recent Tales of games have had kind of nonlinear or like arena-style movement. But what are your thoughts about the combat? In Arise, it felt a lot more dynamic and three-dimensional and, and very modern. Okay. 
And if it didn't have that loading, like little hiccup of loading into the battle, it would feel super seamless and modern. It's just that one tiny little piece that I mean, probably like as you're playing the game and if you're into it, you wouldn't even really notice or think anything of. But just coming from playing East, I think that kind of changed my perspective of it a bit. And I was like, ah, why do I have to stop before I fight everything? Yeah, I guess it depends really on where you want your transitions to be. Because East, uh, especially with East 8, you're transitioning from environment to environment, and there's little loading mm-hmm. screens in between there, but the combat is all seamless. This, I guess, the transition to battles is less seamless, but the overworld is is a little bit more open. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. I mean, I, I I don't know if you really get to experience any towns or or overworld exploration in the demo so i guess it's it's not really fair of me to to judge that but yeah i don't know tales of arise it's a it's a fascinating game to me because it's the first tales of game in a while i think Bazuria was the last one that came out and i don't even remember i feel like that was maybe three or four years ago so i mean it, it makes sense in terms of like a development cycle for how long this game this game has taken but I guess I was hoping that the the series was moving in a new direction in more than just aesthetics. Uh, so mm. I, I would be curious to hear uh, your thoughts if you do end up picking the game up. Yeah, I'm going to definitely keep it on my radar. I'm kind of cautiously optimistic about it, but my first impression wasn't the best. Okay. So we'll see. Well, you did say that the game reminded you of East in some ways. And Mm -hmm. I, uh, because I was thinking about my quest this week, did go back into uh, East 9, which is a game I've already completed and reviewed, which I really liked. I'll say that I embraced East 9 a whole lot more easily than I did East 8, which I know might sound a little bit surprising because East 8 is the more colorful game. Uh, I think in a lot of ways it has more content too, but East 9, I don't know, reminded me more of the uh, the earlier games in the series. And when I say early, I'm talking like East Book 1 and 2, just in that it deals a lot with monster uh, townspeople relationships a little bit more directly. So I just went back uh, because I've also heard a, a little bit of negative commentary about uh, East 9. I hear some people don't feel that it's a very strong uh, entry, or at least it's not as strong as uh, East 8 is. And I guess maybe it just appealed to me a little bit more. I also thought that the characters in East 9 were a little bit more lush and... Well, I'm not really sure what word I would use to describe the way that I feel about these characters, but I I think they're a little less conventional than the ones that appear in 8. And maybe just a little bit uh, better fleshed out than some of the characters that have appeared in previous East games in general. So, Okay, uh, that's cool to hear. Yeah. Uh, I think if you enjoy uh, East 8, but you're looking for something a little bit more focused, I I think that 9 is is the same gameplay, but in a very different sort of... uh, presentation or the the way that the world expands is a little bit different than the way it does in uh, in eight 
Um, but what else have you been playing? Interesting. Um, I've also been questing a bit myself and playing a lot of monster catching games. Yeah. And uh, that has looked like a lot of... Well, I, I used it as an excuse because I kind of knew what I was going to talk about for the quest already. <laughs> but I used it as an excuse to pick up and dive into a couple games that have been on my backlog for the longest time and I really wanted to play, which were Digimon Cyber Sleuth and Shin Megami Tensei 3 Nocturne. Very cool. And Digimon, it actually took me a while to get into it. I played it off and on over the course of the week. And thought it was fun, but didn't quite click with it. And then last night I was playing it, and I was like, ooh, this is fun, I'm into it. And I think that one's really fun just because there's so many Digimon, and you can de-evolve them and evolve them, and there's so many different paths. It feels like there's always something new to do with them, and so many things to uncover about the mysteries of the Digimon. (laughs) Definitely. I think uh, while the story of Cyber Sleuth is very different and weird and that's something that i like about a lot of digimon video games in in general is that when you pick up a new one they're almost completely unrelated to one another in terms of plot and world building so this game takes a lot of time to set up its world and and Mm -hmm. give you a, a feel for what's going on and i'm not sure if will you've ever seen the movie summer wars uh but no i haven't it's it The premise is very similar in that the characters in that movie are kind of interacting with a a digital world that uh, is very similar to the the world that's presented in Cyber Sleuth, which is called Eden. Although the characters in uh, Cyber Sleuth kind of end up getting a little bit more directly integrated uh, into Eden. And I I don't want to spoil anything in particular, but Summer Wars is... Has, has a lot of very similar visuals like when you go into or when you when you experience the world in the movie it's it's very white and clean and pure and i feel like that's the the first impression that they give you of eden and cyber sleuth which i thought was neat but plot is never really the driving force for me in a digimon game and i'm really glad that i played one of these games uh, just in this series before playing Cyber Sleuth because as soon as I picked up Cyber Sleuth I knew exactly what I wanted to do with the game which is mm-hmm. that monster raising aspect of it it's de evolving yeah. things and then re-evolving them and making sure they hit very specific goals uh, so mm-hmm. that you can maybe combine them or turn them into an even more powerful monster and the thing that I think is is pretty fun about that game is you can create a monster and if you just look at it immediately or look at its typing and spells and and the things that it does and you say that doesn't really like fit into my team or appeal to me all that much you can just immediately boot it back down to its uh you know previous form and you can kind of start building it in a completely different direction and so right you get a complete do-over right yeah and so when i talked about it being like a a a very dopamine centered game when i talked about it a a few uh, episodes ago i meant that when you do kick them back down to their previous level you're starting from square one, or I should say level one. And so you can take these Digimon into a dungeon that you've already experienced, and you could be at any point in the story and have it on your team 
and you can just see its levels explode upwards again because you defeat like one enemy encounter, which I think is uh, a very satisfying experience. And so that's that's the core of the 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 enjoyable aspect to me. But what what really got you into the game? Um, I think it was just that. Um, I really like the world. I think it's really cool, like how how it's so focused on this digital world. It really leans into that, and it gives it a cool, unique feel. Um, but really, it's that once I was able to evolve more monsters and catch, not, not catch them, I forget what it's called, but like you download their data, I guess, yeah. and get more, make more, it got more and more fun, and I got more and more into it. And the other thing that really stood out to me about the game that I just wanted to mention is how, like, the graphics aren't amazing by any means, but the environments are so detailed. It looks really cool and engrossing Yeah. in these, like, I don't know, like, what, where this game originally appeared. Was it on a v- on Vita or something? It was, like yeah. It's originally a Vita game. And that's actually, yeah, so, <laughs> so, so sorry to, to interrupt, but that's something that yeah, really stood out to me, too. And the thing that I really like about the sort of central hub in this game is that it's this mm-hmm. like three or four story mall, I guess you would call it. It's a, yeah. it's a very Japanese uh, sort of structure, which if, if you've ever been to Japan, they have these malls that are multiple stories and they have like tight corridors, but they're all packed with shops. And so there's a lot of detail in that. But even I, I like the, the dungeons in this game too, although they're a little bit more clean in their palette. But was that specifically mm-hmm. what you were talking about? Yeah, like I really was thinking of the mall and how detailed it is and like you can see what's in the shops and stuff. And you can't go in a lot of them, which is a little disappointing, but I appreciate like how just detailed they are. It reminds me of like a kid's drawing, you know, like when a kid does a drawing of something and it's like not drawn well, but they add so many little details that they notice that you're like, oh, this is cool. Like, I get it. It's really good. <laughs> yeah, that's... It's like that. That's really neat. And it's it's cool to just... I think it's cool to to have games set in Japan and uh, mm-hmm. as someone who's not really into the the persona games that would probably be like the strongest entry point for me but I also do really love Tokyo Mirage Sessions which is Nintendo exclusive sort of Shin Megami Tensei persona-esque game and that really takes place in Tokyo so you do there's like a the the store that you visit when you are in that game is a convenience store. So you do get that. You you see all the shelves lined with like snacks and it's, it's this very authentic experience. And sometimes that's a, that's a really great part of, of world building. I also really like the sound design in this game too. I, I think that a lot of the sound effects are really addictive uh, in their own way. And mm-hmm. again, that this game is is surprising to me as a as a Vita title because I think that the monster designs are really really detailed, and they are and some of the animations they look really good yeah the the animations are really strong too and I don't know in comparison with another monster catching series which we may or may not have talked about last week I just find this to be a much more engaging experience because of the the detail present in the monsters themselves. Yeah, they look really cool. They look really good and they're they're varied, but they all have a similar style. Like you can tell it's a Digimon when you see it. Yeah. And so on a semi-related note because it does have to do with uh your quests and also what you were just talking about having picked up uh, or at least broken into. I played 
Shin Megami Tensei 4. That was my first uh, SMT game. And then I kind of came back and played a couple of other uh, games in the series, like Soul Hackers and Devil Survivor, I believe. I think that's that's the one I'm thinking of. That's the 3DS strategy game, which I didn't even mention last week. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Um, <laughs> we do again. Yeah. Uh, but I also have played Nocturne, and I'm really curious to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, I had a kind of similar trajectory into the series where I, like, I had a friend who was really into the Shin Megami Tensei games in college. And so they were like, kind of always like, I knew they existed, but, and I watched him play pieces of them and pieces of earlier Persona games, but I never played them myself. And then I did play a bit of uh, Shin Megami Tensei 4 on the 3DS several years ago and I liked it but I just didn't get that into it and I, I probably got like 10 8 10 hours into it and I was like it's fine but the way you catch the monsters or that you convince the demons to join you I just it just didn't click with me and it was I was finding it annoying and aggravating because I felt like less than half the time I was able to recruit the demons that I wanted to and the game just didn't click with me for some reason. The setting was like too post-apocalyptic for me or something. So the, like I was like, I don't think I really like these games. But Nocturne came out on Switch, and I was like... Honestly, I was like, I want to play the Persona series because I hear so much about it. And I don't really like Shin Megami Tensei. But then I started getting the FOMO, and I was like, well, this is what we've got on Switch. This is the closest thing, <laughs> so I want to play it. And then like this monster catching thing came up and it was on my mind again, but I still wasn't that into it. But then I, I watched a YouTube clip of it and the music really captured me was the first thing. It was so like weirdly like 80s horror synthetic <laughs> kind of vibe. And I was like, yes, I'm into this. And the, the whole vibe of the game is so much more surreal, I feel like, than 4. Yeah. Um, it it feels less apocalyptic and more surreal and just weird. And I really like that weird surreal part of it. And I think part of it is like the lack of textures because it's an older <laughs> game and it's kind of an emptier world, but that allows it to kind of, I don't know, to create this different kind of landscape that I really got into. And I started playing it and I was like, I feel like I'm going to bounce off because it's going to be too hard or something. But I enjoyed it like right away. And like, there's just the right amount of story to be intriguing and to keep me going, but it doesn't cut into the gameplay too much. I feel like I'm always advancing. The demons are cool. I'm able to recruit them much more consistently than I was in 4 for some reason. I'm not sure why. Uh, everything just started clicking. I'm really enjoying it. So I'm excited to play more. But those are kind of my first reactions. Cool. Well, I will say I think that the opening moments of 4 are pretty brutal in their own way four has kind of its its opening is centered around this main dungeon and it's you're, you're just descending more and more into it and it can be a little bit of a slog in some ways especially because they throw a lot of like terrain hazards at you um, but i'm surprised that you are finding demon negotiation easier in three i i would be curious to know what difficulty uh you're you're playing on um, I'm playing on normal at the moment, okay. and I found that there's a merciful difficulty that you can download, so I will probably do that before too long. I haven't gotten to, I heard there's like this one boss near the beginning that's just like 
checks you and is like, you thought this game was easy, didn't you? Oh, for sure. So yeah, I think I'm almost at this boss. Okay. So I will find out probably this weekend whether I need to download the Merciful yeah. difficulty setting. And I imagine the answer will be yes. And next time I will talk about that. I, I did play a lot of my Nocturne playthrough on hard. Ooh, brutal. Uh, and I played a lot of uh, four on hard as well. And I did feel that Four's negotiations were easier to manage than Nocturne's were. But I think that Nocturne, in terms of how its difficulty scaled, I think that Nocturne was just a, a harder game in general. Uh, so that, that might just be a, a part of it. And Four does have a, a have a skill check that is similar to Nocturne's, but it's definitely not as brutal. So uh, I, I, I do think that the quality of life uh, improvements... In, in a variety of regards uh, with the uh, HD remaster have been great. But I, I do think that your comments about the aesthetics uh, are, are really do rank true. I think sometimes games really succeed on their authenticity, especially when it comes to something uh, more like Digimon Cyber Sleuth, where that, that mall is very uh, authentic or authentically mm-hmm. Japanese. Uh, and, Nocturne, it's almost the absence of uh, of detail that that lends it this fascinating uh, aesthetic and uh, degree of engagement. And so I'm yeah, uh, for sure. I'm, I'm curious to even see how five is going to compare to it uh, in a lot of ways because there there seems to be some some elements uh, that. They, they, they seem like echoes of Nocturne to me in some ways, but I also think that the story is going in a completely new direction as well. So needless to say, I will be picking up five, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. But I also looking forward to hearing more of your thoughts about Nocturne uh, as you move forward, hopefully. Yeah, I'm not that far in yet, so I'm sure I will be talking about it again at least next week, if not many weeks after that. We'll see. Okay, very cool. So... I, again, haven't been playing all that much, but I did take a look back at a few games, uh, as well as I'm just slowly chipping away at this uh, great game that I've mentioned a few times. I wanted to expand on it just a little bit. Uh, It's called Black Book, and it is a a Kickstarter-funded title that is a card-based RPG that is centered around Slavic mythology and folklore. Uh, So there's a a lot of fairy tale uh, aspects and elements to the story. You're playing as a girl who has signed her name in this black book and now has become a witch. She can use these spells that are in this book uh, to summon demons, but also to uh, just kind of figure out what her goals are which is her fiance i i don't really think he was a fiance but uh her her lover at least mysteriously passed away and so she's trying to break the seals on this book in order to revive him and the way that this game was marketed was as a blend between card-based uh rpg mechanics and also adventure game mechanics and i really do see that uh in this in this game because there is a lot of dialogue but there's also a lot of uh choices to make and the one thing that i'm really enjoying about it is that it feels like you can go in a variety of of different directions and i almost 
am looking forward to replaying the game with the amount of choices it offers you in terms of, of what you can choose to do, whether you save certain characters or uh, whether you damn them to hell, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, and that's a, that's a really fascinating part of RPG design is that, that choice-based gameplay where I don't really see all that much uh, variety is in the combat system. They really give you all of the options that you could want to use. Uh, they, they give them all to you, uh, and, and you can build your deck or reshape it in whatever way you want to tackle very specific tasks. But uh, it is, I guess they, they likened the combat to Slay the Spire, and I know we've we've talked about that previously. We've also talked a little bit about Monster Train, I would say that the mechanics are all here in Black Book. They're really enjoyable, and I have rebuilt my deck at least three times throughout my playthrough and found new experiments that I want to try out and enjoy, and I really am. And so I'm not really using my deck to solve character-based problems all that much, but I am using it to overcome different combat scenarios uh, in a lot of ways. And I think that's uh, a strength of, of really good uh, gameplay design. That's really interesting. And when you say that they give you everything you need, do you mean like you have all the cards from the start and you're not unlocking new ones? No, <laughs> I don't mean that, actually. And so I, okay. I, I should clarify. The, the game is chapter-based, and so as you progress from chapter to chapter, um, when you're breaking the seals on your book, you're gaining, I, I guess, sort of expansions to the, the overall uh, card collection. So you, oh, cool. you start with a, a very you know, basic set of cards that can be integrated into a deck that you use later, um, but they also have balanced the game really well so that everything that you have unlocked up till that point will be able to tackle and overcome uh, the the enemies that you're going to face, um, which I think is smart. The other really cool thing about the game, and I, I would be remiss in, in not mentioning this, is that you do have party members as well, uh, and you you are the main character kind of casting spells but you can always have a partner who can do like an additional action that's on a cooldown meter uh, and you can actually make their abilities stronger by completing side quests and the side quests are really unique in this game because you can tackle them at any time throughout the 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 course of of gameplay and so what they do is they actually give you very specific decks to use during the side quest. So you kind of have to relearn all the mechanics of the deck uh, as you're completing the side quest. And sometimes they, they ask you to do and, and they ask you to fight very, very specific bosses where you might only have three turns to defeat the boss and you need to figure out what what arrangement of cards you have available to you uh, is going to defeat them in that amount of time. So it's a really... Cool, that sounds like a really interesting challenge to get you thinking about the game in a different way and mix things up. Exactly, and that's it's so cool because 
you might not have even experimented with some of the mechanics that you're going to have to use in the mm-hmm. side quest, but when you're forced to do so, you then look at them in this new light and you're like, oh, wow, like making a deck based on this would be super cool. And that is a really enjoyable uh, part of it. And so honestly, it's a game that I've been slowly chipping away at, but every single time I play it, I find myself enjoying it a whole lot. And I think that in the same way as Nocturne, the aesthetics are really uh, very scaled back. There's not a whole lot of texture work, at least in the 3D environments. You do see character portraits and they are a little bit more detailed. But the demons that you fight are just like shadowy wraiths. And so it it does leave a lot to the imagination. And I think it's, a, it's done really, really uh, effectively uh, in that game. That sounds super cool. I'm really intrigued by this game and really curious to pick it up soon. Yeah. And uh, I would say that not just because of my my tabletop mechanic preferences, but not not only for that reason, but it's a definite recommend for me uh, from me. But I would say that the only aspect that I that I struggle with is that the controls, at least your your control stick is really, really sensitive uh, in cycling through menus um, and, and things of that nature. And so there are no options in game to turn that down, which is really frustrating. Mm. And so sometimes you'll just find yourself like accidentally skipping over something that you want to uh, access. You know, you you have the chance to to go back and it's the the way that the game mitigates it is they actually have a, a, a press or not a press, but a hold a to confirm system. Okay. (laughs) which i think is is a smart idea but um it 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 definitely does feel like a result of that weird control issue Hmm. and there's no way to use a d-pad control uh well it depends there are like certain scenarios where you can use the d-pad and luckily Hmm. you can use it during combat which makes oh that's which makes things a whole lot easier especially as you're kind of uh riffling through the the cards in your hand but uh, there are some menus where you can't, and that's that's kind of a bummer. That sounds tough. Not something you want to deal with as a challenge in a game when you've got other challenges to face. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and so on a semi-related note, I dealing with the world of, of spirits and demons and what have you, I did go back to Oninaki uh, this week. So I was curious, uh, Will, are you familiar with Oninaki at all? I'm not. Tell me about it. Okay, well, Oninaki is the third game from the renowned, question mark, developer known as Tokyo RPG Factory. Uh, Sounds fair. So they're renowned. (laughs) Yeah, so these are the guys who made I Am Setsuna and Lost Sphere, and... In terms of a uh, a title for for a, a studio, I feel that it's it's kind of disingenuous to call yourself Tokyo RPG Factory because it it limits what you can make uh, in some ways, right? Uh, and I am Setsuna and Lost Sphere in a lot of ways were very direct throwbacks to classic RPGs, classic Japanese RPGs. Um, but Oninaki is a little bit different. It's their first game that is a action RPG, and you can definitely oh, you can definitely tell that that is the case uh, because there are some things that are really unique and clever about it, but there are also some mechanics that are really questionable. 
So to go back to yes. a conversation we were having last week, Oninaki is all about using weapons that are possessed by the spirits of certain uh, characters. So it's almost boyfriend okay. dungeon-esque, <laughs> but it's also, <laughs> it's got a little bit of that ultra age uh, vibe in that you can change your weapons. Well, actually that's, is that true? Gosh, you'd think I would actually know the answer to this. Uh, <laughs> no, that you, you can't change your weapons. You, you equip a specific weapon, but as you're kind of traversing throughout the world, you can, you know, go into a menu and, uh, and equip new ones. But at, the more that you fight with a weapon, uh, the higher the chances that a enemy uh, that you felled will drop a experience point for that weapon. And these weapons have very expansive skill trees. Uh, so almost in a Xenoblade Chronicles 2 uh, sort of way, you are expanding their skill tree and making their abilities stronger so that you can use them more in combat. Uh, and you've got some really cool weapons. Um, I think all of the play styles that are available to the player in this game are really unique, but you get more and more as you progress through the game, and they all start, again, at that square or level one. And that's kind of a bummer, because a lot of their skill tree is these really incremental uh, increases in your abilities, where mm -hmm. like uh, your crit rate will get slightly higher, or your movement speed when you're attacking will get slightly better. Or, oh, when you get hit by an attack, you you won't interrupt your combo. So it's a little bit of a bummer, and it makes getting new weapons uh, a little bit of a slog. So something that I really like about Oninaki is that you are this sort of medium who communicates with the spirits of those who have passed on. And while they, they haven't really gone into the afterlife yet, they're still lingering in the world as spirits. And so you actually just have a button that you can use to switch between the realm of the living and the realm of the dead. And it's the same environment, but it's just recolor-coded. And uh, it, it's a very pretty uh, transition, but the enemies that are in certain environments are actually different. And so they can be easier to defeat with certain weapons or maybe not. Overall, I wouldn't really say that the game's difficulty is all that bad. It's not really a, a hard game, especially with how enemies are or how enemy encounters operate. They pretty much just spawn and they spawn in groups, and their AI isn't really all that complex. As you get later into the game, the enemies do become a little bit more nuanced in how you have to attack them, or what sort of attacks they will perform against you. But for the most part, they're just kind of like grunts that you slash down. And for an action RPG, that makes sense, except the whole game kind of plays from a very classic sort of I don't want to say top-down, but very isometri isometric perspective. Okay, gotcha. So it's, a, it's just a little bit strange to be like this far zoomed out and be attacking uh, these swarms of enemies in this sort of way. Uh, I will say that the boss encounters are actually tough, uh, but overall I wasn't really all that impressed with this game. I think the story is really basic and kind of bland, uh, and the game doesn't really capitalize on the the very appealing elements of its 
uh, premise all that well. Um, and so while I, I guess I can't really call Oninaki a sequel per se, because it takes place in a very different universe from either Lost uh, Sphere or I Am Setsuna, it was a game that I was left disappointed with, and that's actually after really being excited to give it a chance when it first released. That's disappointing. It sounds like it was experimental in a lot of ways. Maybe it'll hopefully lead to cooler things down the road, but not a little disappointing in itself. Yeah, I'm just worried because I think that Lost Sphere and also Oninaki really underperformed for this studio, and Mm. so they might not have the chance to experiment again, which I think is a shame. Yikes. Yeah. But also at the same time, their games have like a very stable pricing point, so they don't really go on sale all that often and when they do they don't have more than like a 20 percent discount applied to them so i don't know if that's because they're just trying to get whatever money they can from these but we also haven't heard from this development team since the end of oninaki and i don't know if that is a good or bad sign so was there anything else that you wanted to discuss or did you want to get right into our quests um, I've been playing a bunch of other games, but just like little bits here and there, so I don't really want to talk about them today. I want to f- focus and and actually get through some games and get in that headspace. But I did want to mention very quickly another game that I've been playing that's not really a game, um, but it reminded me of this podcast. It's called Habitica, and it's an app that you can download on like Apple or Google or whatever. I think it's all over the place. And it's really just for tracking tasks, but they've RPGified it, much like we've RPGified this podcast. <laughs> okay. Um, so you have a character and you set tasks and um, like daily tasks and habits that you want to change. And as you check them off, you get experience and you level up your character and you can create parties with other people. Um, there's like a social networking aspect to it. And uh, it's, it's just a fun way to kind of gamify your life. So I've been kind of enjoying that and using it to track off things like working on this pod quest and and working on uh and playing games and other creative pursuits and things like that so it's just a fun way i've been kind of rpgifying my life outside of rpgifying the games that i play (laughs) well that's really cool i might actually look into that myself just because i think that gamifying in a lot of ways can be a really beneficial uh, sort of strategy for certain kinds of people. I don't know if it's for me uh, in specific, but I do want to give it a try. Yeah, and I I like it just because I like to keep checklists, and (laughs) it's an app that does that, and that's honestly how I found it. But I was like, hmm, this is interesting, an interesting angle to it as well. So I don't know if those elements are what's keeping me with it, but just having an easy way to track things in my life has been really helpful. Okay, very cool. But that's it that I wanted to mention. So we can get right into our quests. And I think that I started last time, if I remember correctly. So I'll let you roll on your quest first this week. All right. Well, uh, as I have hinted at throughout this entire conversation so far, my quest has been a little bit of a struggle uh, for me. And I think this might go back to a conversation that we had very early on uh, before kind of starting this whole process. Um, And I think I might have mentioned it on the show is that when it comes to series, I am less of a, a 
a sort of faithful person when it comes to to series. Uh, I, I don't really have any love for Final Fantasy. Uh, and if I do find a Final Fantasy or a Dragon Quest uh, title that I like, it's it's usually just one. And then I, I find it a little bit difficult to transfer to another uh, because in a lot of ways, I feel that they're very similar mechanically and thematically. That's a story for another time. But even when I think of, again, your Tales of, I haven't played all that all that many games. I've played a couple of games in the Shin Megami Tensei series, but I haven't played one or two, so I can't really say that I'm all that faithful in that respect. Uh, so talking about a bad sequel to an RPG is is a a very difficult topic for me. I'm always trying to find new RPGs and new series to play. So I went back to East 9, of course, because some people had been a little bit down on it, uh, but I enjoy that game, so I don't really think that that was uh, applicable here. I went back to Oninaki, which isn't really a sequel to any of the previous Tokyo RPG Factory games, but that would be the, the closest thing that I could maybe think of. So I really had to get into semantics here. <laughs> Ooh, and, exciting. Uh, I know that this answer is probably going to disappoint some people, and it's maybe going to upset some people as well, because I know that there are a lot of diehard fans of this game. But when we talk about semantics, and we talk about the quest that is in front of us right now, the quest is... A bad sequel to an RPG. So, with that in mind, I decided to settle on Super Paper Mario, which, in my opinion, is not an RPG. <laughs> but it is a bad sequel to an RPG. Okay, that checks out. So, I have been very adamant on my social media, but also just throughout the world, uh, in my love of the Paper Mario series, even though I guess I can't really say that I'm a fan of the Paper Mario series when I only really liked the first two games. And by now we're looking at six games in the series, mm. and four of them are not necessarily games that I like. So I have to go back to my love of The Thousand Year Door here, which I think in so many ways is a perfect sequel in a lot of uh, respects. It deepens the combat system. It presents these new sorts of scenarios. Uh, it has a more mature story. And again, this is Paper Mario, so the story doesn't have to be all that mature, but I think the dialogue is even funnier than the previous game. And I think that the localization of Paper Mario games in general is always something that has been really strong. It's even strong in Super Paper Mario. However, this is not a good sequel to an RPG because it does nothing with the concepts that were introduced or expanded upon in The Thousand Year Door, and it it, it doesn't iterate on them in any way. It is a... I mean, some people, I think, call it an action platformer. There is a weird, like, HP system to this game, and certain characters that you can play as have different uh, attack power because 
your your grunt enemies that you encounter as you're platforming through these uh, worlds, they actually do have HP themselves, which is a weird thing. Uh, but I guess I'm I'm a little bit curious. Will have you ever played Super Paper Mario? I haven't. I don't think I've played any Paper Mario games at all, actually. Okay. Well, again, I would really strongly recommend the original Paper Mario and the Thousand Year Door. Okay. I played through Sticker Star on the 3DS, and while I liked it initially, I did realize that there were some elements missing. It is more in the vein of the the original Paper Mario games in just that it has a turn-based battle system, but just because something has a turn-based battle system doesn't make it an RPG, and that might be a weird statement to make, but... I think that's... I think it's totally true. Yeah. <laughs> it's really applicable uh, in the case of Sticker Star. Color Splash I also own and is m- more of the same, although it sidesteps specific issues that I had with Sticker Star, but it creates new ones. And then I haven't picked up the Origami King because it also looks like more of the same in that it doesn't really have a whole lot of depth. So that's all I'm going to say about that. But um, yeah, Super Paper Mario uh, was not actually developed by Intelligent Systems, who was known for the first two games. And I'm actually, uh, I'm going to pull up the developer for this game. But I think that that's a huge part of why this, in terms of design, is so different in so many ways. But... The Paper Mario series up to this point was known for having these sort of like diorama-esque looking environments, which was really cute because it made it look like it was, you know, these paper mache or not paper mache, but uh, these even cardboard cutout sorts of environments that you were kind of going into the foreground uh, and background to interact with. And Super Paper Mario, its gimmick is that basic gameplay is just on a 2d plane but then you can kind of swap to a three-dimensional uh sort of perspective and when you swap to that 3d perspective you take the the 2d plane that you were playing on and turn it so that you are instead of walking left or right you're walking into the screen or out of the screen uh, so you're you're still on a very limited sort of plane because even though you're in 3D, you still only have like a little bit of wiggle space to the left and right to to move around. But this game was developed by well, I went to the Paper Mario Wikipedia rather than just normal Wikipedia, so maybe I should do that instead. Yeah, that's interesting. It was a different developer because that's like it feels like it's kind of setting up for failure in terms of a good sequel. It can be cool and it can be like a refresh that a series needs to go in a new direction, but it seems like a very risky. Yeah, so (laughs) it does say uh, actually on Wikipedia that intelligent systems did work on this game, but also that Nintendo SPD group number three worked on it, which (laughs) I don't know what else they've done. I'm actually going to pull that up really quickly um, because I would be curious uh, to know that. So that's software planning and development. Uh, And group number three has done a whole lot of different stuff, which I think 
uh, really does drive home why this is a, a strange game. They worked on Super Mario Strikers, uh, Super Paper Mario, several mm. Mario versus Donkey Kong games, at least the more recent ones, which are all about those like little mm. mini uh, critters. They they apparently did some work on Donkey Kong Country Returns, which again I I find kind of surprising because I'm pretty sure Retro Studios worked on that a whole lot. So I'm thinking that it's probably a lot of of people who maybe they have a lot of work outsourced to them uh, in some ways. Yeah, it seems like they're doing really niche stuff where it isn't fitting in other places. Maybe. Yeah, but I I will also say that. Group number three is headed by, uh, I, I'm definitely going to butcher his, his Japanese uh, name, so I apologize, um, but uh, Kensuke Tanabe, who I do know has had a hand in quite a few of the more recent Paper Mario games, and that might be uh, a key as to why those games operate in such a different way from the originals. Uh, so obviously the the very straightforward answer to why this is a bad sequel is that it's just not an rpg i think aesthetically it does some unique things i think the soundtrack is just as good as either the thousand year door or uh, paper mario before it but i just didn't find the gameplay to be all that fun and it really just felt like it was wasting my time more than it was engaging me in in clever and unique uh, sorts of systems so that is why i'm gonna say i know a lot of people love the story of this game uh, i think it's fine but to me it's a bad sequel to an rpg put the stamp of disapproval on that one definitely <laughs> boom okay that uh that was a good answer i liked it um i think it got into into a bit what a bad sequel means because i think that's how we often start our quests and i think that's part of the cool part about them is that it lets you have this bigger discussion about where rpgs fit in the bigger conversation about rpgs and the genre itself yeah so i did hint last week about maybe making this whole episode about how i don't find xenoblade 2 uh-huh. to be a, a a great sequel which i i think could maybe work in a completely different direction from from the the route that i took here uh, in some ways, I do kind of feel like this is a, a bit of a cop out, but it's funny because in creating this uh, this quest list, right, we we kind of came up with these talking points that we wanted to challenge one another with. And I'm not sure if I made this one or if you made this one. It sounds like something that I would think, it, actually. I think you made. Yeah. Um, but it's funny how kind of actually being confronted with it, I realized that saying something is bad or good is is very tough in regards to being a sequel but especially when it comes to rpgs i think it's difficult because rpgs are such big games in in a lot of ways and so i've never played like a smaller rpg sequel and and when i when i think of the the big sequels that i have played they they sometimes do things so drastically different that if someone were to be picking up that game first rather than the the game that came before it they might enjoy it for the reasons that it that it is different from the original right uh, and and so ultimately you know are you doing a, a disservice to that game to call it a bad sequel i think if xenoblade 
2 had been my first introduction to that style of, of games, which for a lot of people it was because mm-hmm. it was the best-selling uh, Xenoblade game in in that whole you know series, that, that trilogy of, of games so far. I think maybe going back to the original Xenoblade Chronicles, they'd be like, eh, this gameplay isn't as fun, or these characters aren't as wacky, or I don't want to date any of the weapons that I'm using. <laughs> Um, and those might be reasons they enjoyed the first one, but those are also reasons why transitioning into Xenoblade 2, I wasn't all all that big of a fan. I, I mean, I do think that the combat in Xenoblade 2 is overall better uh, than the original, but aside from that, I felt that there were a lot of stylistic choices that they made that didn't sit right with me. Mm. So that's that's just another direction that we can maybe take this uh, sort of discussion, but it it is again you know when we talk about the the nature of how we tackle these uh, quests and whether or not we want to make it a, a soapbox that we want to stand on or maybe something that's rather straightforward as an answer that that all depends on on how strongly we feel about a certain topic. For sure, yeah, and uh, but I think it's really interesting you brought up Xenoblade too because. And like I said, I'm more of like a series person. Like I love the Xenoblade series. And when I say that, I encapsulate like Xenosaga and Gears and everything because I like get so sucked into a franchise, uh, which is totally the opposite, which I think is super interesting in our discussions to see the difference there. But but even though it is one of my favorite franchises and I love Xenoblade 1 and 2, they do have very different feels. And I think I prefer one a little bit more simply for the aesthetics and because, and more the music than anything, honestly. Like, and the overly anime style of two kind of turned me off at first, actually. Um, yeah. Whereas one yeah. is a little bit more smoothed over or a little more realistic in a way, even though it's still very cartoony and anime inspired. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree. I think that the the most ludicrous character that you have in the original is Ricky. Uh, yes. And he even gets some really strong, you know, character moments. Yep. And in comparison with, I mean, even just in comparison with the other uh, Napon in 2, uh, who's Tora, he's so much more tame mm-hmm. uh, but you know to talk about uh, good and bad sequels again too I-, I know you haven't played uh xenoblade x right i have actually yes oh okay um sorry i don't know why i assumed that but I don't think we've something that about i, I yes yeah, so i don't know why, why i thought that um but something that i love about that game is that it is so much more pure sci-fi mm-hmm. uh in nature and while someone who's coming from either Xenoblade 2 or the original uh, Xenoblade might be like, oh, this is really weird and I don't like this a whole lot. Uh, someone who maybe likes uh, Xenogears or Xenosaga might be like, oh, wow, this is so much more in the vein of those games and is more faithful as a sequel to those than it is to Xenoblade Chronicles. Yeah, that's a really good point. And the other thing I just wanted to point out in the talking about a bad sequel discussion of these games is that I don't know if this is a hot take or just a regular take or just a fact, but <laughs> I don't it's think something. Xenoblade 2 is a sequel at all. It just has a 2 after it. It's a completely different story that has a lot of similar themes and then is kind of loosely connected 
almost as an afterthought to the first game. Yeah, I I agree, and that's why like it's kind of a new iteration the... of it more than anything. I feel like it's almost like a spiritual successor in a weird way. Which in, in and it's funny too because you think about Final Fantasy, right? Which is so much those those aren't direct sequels. So let's talk a little bit about your quest. Okay, uh, my quest was a monster catching, raising RPG that you love. And again, like we talked about, we've talked about multiple times today and other times. I am a sucker for franchises and series. So I was trying to think like not which franchise do I love, but which RPG specific game do I love uh, when I was thinking about this. And as you know, I have very basic taste in video games. Final Fantasy VII is probably my favorite game of all time. And so the monster catching raising RPG that I love that I picked is Pokemon X. Pokemon X, yep. okay. Specifically so that one. I will say that as a semi-fan of the Pokemon series, uh, and one with very specific tastes in certain installments, mm-hmm. I will say Generation 6, specifically the start. I didn't play Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire, but X and Y I did play, and I enjoyed quite a bit. So why is this the game specifically that you like yeah um a little bit of its timing because it was kind of the one that brought me back to pokemon after years of not really playing it i played blue back in the day and then i played a little bit of crystal but didn't didn't finish it at the time and then i played and then i came back with four actually with uh, diamond and pearl and enjoyed that one and played through it and then it fell off my radar again until x and y got announced and i was like pokemon I remember that. So I started like looking into it and I got really excited. I went back and I played all the games that I hadn't played yet. And I just got really hyped for it. And I got a 3DS just to play it. And then I got it. And I just immediately found it so charming. I loved all the Pokemon designs. I loved the world. It felt really like they really dived in, dove into the French culture, which I like they'd done in previous games, but I don't know, it just clicked and created this whole world with a really rich setting. And the characters felt more fleshed out and interesting. I loved all the Pokemon designs, all the new ones were really cool. Um, I loved Chespin from the start, and I was like, yes, this is going to be my starter. And I loved all the evolutions, and everything just clicked and felt right. And I really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed this was like the first really 3D one which was really cool and more immersive. And I really like that you could customize the trainer and get new clothes and see them on the trainer. I thought that was really fun and immersive. And everything just kind of clicked. I really enjoyed it. So I agree in a lot of ways. Uh, I thought that the new the newness of mm-hmm. x and y was was the most exciting part of that game and i i do remember actually waiting uh for the midnight release of this game which i don't think i did for black and white or black two and white two i mean i didn't play black two and white two because i didn't enjoy black and white as much as i did uh and I just recall, yes, the the trainer customization being a hugely, you know, impactful part. Obviously, seeing all the Pokemon in 3D for the first time was hugely exciting. Uh, and 
just this really this this graphical leap yeah. even the 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 new uh np or not npcs but the new player character models being like still chibi mm-hmm. but less so you know uh yes <laughs> tall uh, chibi better dimensions and then of course you know being able to see their full model in when you actually you know through the pokeball and then also you know outfitting them in in their outfits you you could really see uh what they looked like was was really really enjoyable and i i found even just the progression from one route to the next i felt like the first third of the game went by was like very well paced Mm -hmm. and felt very long i i wouldn't necessarily say that the the plot of the game was all that thrilling um you know i played x or no i I didn't play x sorry i played y and i i found that team flair's philosophy didn't really vibe with the yveltal lore which is that it's like the pokemon of death i guess which is very different from x which is all about uh, xerneas is is all about life and I i felt that that fit with team flair's uh philosophy more but i also really liked and it's it's a part that i still miss to this day is i loved the idea of mega evolutions and how that brought this new unique sort of concept to the fold where pokemon could change only in battle but when they did it was this huge exponential boost and they took on different typings or you know, obviously the the appearance factor was a huge part of it too. I just thought that was so neat. So in terms of introducing new ideas, I, I felt that it was such a, a fresh entry point. And it's actually, it's a game that I still go back to today because I found the breeding system to be the most accessible that it's ever been for me personally. And I know that Later games have improved quality of life even more in terms of making competitively viable Pokemon, but for some reason, the elements that they introduced in X and Y were the most satisfying to me. Yeah, they streamlined a lot of things and just made it really fun and clear how it worked, and everything was easy, and it was just really, really nice experience. I definitely agree. So I'm, I'm glad that you chose this entry uh, in specific yeah i think it's my favorite of all of the uh, pokemon games like i think like the original is up there pretty high too but this one like that's more nostalgia than anything probably and this one iterated on all that and did everything better so i think this is probably my favorite of all to me i think it still probably comes down it, it would be probably a tie between this and uh, heart gold and soul silver those are great that ones i think too. might it might also come back to just the amount of content mm-hmm. that is in the in those games. And again, I do think that there's an element of nostalgia uh, in there too. So I can definitely get where you're coming from. And of course, when we talk about monster catching and raising, it's sort of unavoidable uh, that Pokemon is going to enter into this uh, conversation. Um, but it's not without good reason. You know, the the excitement and even the mechanics behind catching Pokemon are just so well thought out and well designed that the the collection aspect and maybe it's not even the collection aspect, but it's the 
opportunity to get the ones that you love and raise them and make them a part of your team, which we've you know previously talked about on the show, is what's so uh, appealing. And you know, Digimon does it in its own way. You know, there are other monster catching games. Uh, Shin Megami Tensei does it in its own way, uh, and sometimes they are more or less rewarding, depend depending on you know your your personal preferences. But uh, yeah, there's just something so gosh darn. Uh, appealing about throwing a pokeball yeah it's really fun and satisfying and i think when i think about like the other monster catching games i've been playing i think the thing that really sets pokemon apart is there's the nostalgia factor of course which was um in x and y for me personally coming back to the series what just hit me just right because like squirtle is my favorite pokemon of all time and they're like you can get the starters from the first games and i was like wait what i was sold but now i'm like extra sold so i had like my chespin and my squirtle and i was like this is the best thing ever like i don't i don't need anything else from this game but then it just kept delivering so i really love that but anyway my point was there's that nostalgia factor but also the thing that is really unique about pokemon is that they've extended the collecting beyond the game and i don't mean just like toys and merchandise and the show and stuff though there is that outside of the game but like i feel like my pokemon collection nowadays is in pokemon home not in the game and i realized this really with uh, the latest installment sword and shield because i completed the pokedex and i was like oh no i only have one of the legendary dogs i need the other one but no one wants to trade for it so i'll just like erase my save file, put all the Pokemon and Pokemon home and start over. And I did that and I like sped run through the game, got another one, traded it for the one I needed. And then I was like, yeah, I'm good. Like, I don't care about the save file. I don't care about the Pokemon in the game. I only care about the ones in home because those are the ones that I've transferred over through the years that I have back from like Pokemon Leaf Green that I transferred up and up and up through each series. And I have them now in Pokemon home still. So that's really cool. And that's something that I don't think has been really replicated by anything else. I I, I get that. Um, I also think that it's like a, it's a really specific perspective that you can have as a a longtime mm-hmm. fan of, of Pokemon. You know, I haven't really done all that much with any of the Poke banking systems myself. Uh, I, I do understand that it is an option, and in a lot of ways, I have thought about replaying uh, my copy of Pokemon Y because I just enjoyed it so much, and I'm probably going to have to take that dive and, you know, pick up a Pokemon Bank subscription at some point in order to to make that happen. And I, I do I do like that idea, but to me, it is it's it's often about the Pokemon that I pick up during my journey. And I've actually, I don't know about uh, whether whether or not you're familiar with this whole Nuzlocke idea. Yes, (laughs) yes. Uh, I've actually become a a really big fan of this concept uh, as as I've matured with Pokemon a little bit more uh, because it it challenges you to make do with what you have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with more recent Pokemon games with experience share and and things of that nature. You don't really need to worry about your Pokemon ever fainting, I guess, uh, and and having to kick them out of your party completely. But I like the idea of kind of leaving things up to chance and building my team around whatever I encounter first. 
because I'll, I'll always remember those Pokemon for what role they served in my yeah. party at that time. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess going back to the Pokebank and maybe looking through my collection in that way would be satisfying. Uh, but yeah, I've never really been a fan of, of just the idea of like catching them all, mm-hmm. but I am a fan of forming these bonds with these Pokemon and then having them uh, along for the ride no matter where I go. Yeah, and I, well, I think like the, the Pokemon Home Bank experience is for the collectors more than anything or people who have Pokemon that they transferred along and for that nostalgia factor. I don't think it's for everyone. I find, I find it cool because the collecting is my favorite part. Like I'm not really into like battling or a competitive aspect, but I do enjoy Nuzlocks and different kinds of challenges. I, I tried Nuzlocks a couple times and did really bad. So now I just give myself my own challenges. Like I recently started a let's go replay and was like, I'm only going to use plant type Pokemon. And I've been really enjoying that. Cool. I still have several gems to go, but I've gotten through like 60% of the game probably. And it's made me use Pokemon I never have before and learn new skills with them and see their limits and where they can excel that I had no idea. So that's been really fun. Yeah, you know, again, in preparation for Legends, uh, I have almost been kind of on the fence about picking up Pokemon Go because it, at least in terms of the throwing and catching Mm -hmm. mechanics, is a little bit more similar. Uh, but I also am curious about picking up Pokemon Go because it does have a co-op option. And I think it would be really cute to play along uh, with a certain special someone in my life. But that that might just be uh, a little bit of sentimentality talking. Is that Let's Go that uh, you're talking but... about? Like Let's Go yes. Pikachu and Eevee? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, those are fun. I played through most of them co-op or most of Let's Go Pikachu co-op and it was really fun. I recommend it. Cool. All right. Well, that uh, that sounds good to me. <laughs> um, so do you have anything else that you wanted to uh, mention in regards to Pokemon X in particular or Pokemon as a series? Um, just one quick thing I wanted to say that isn't Pokemon X, but was something that I really enjoyed about my experience with it specifically is that um, another thing that just kind of aligned with my experience there was I just decided to give my Pokemon all themed names in that one. Mm-hmm. And I'd never really done it before. I'd given some of them nicknames here and there that were just fun or cool or whatever. But I was like, I'm going to name them all after my favorite writers. And so it added this extra theme. And like I tried to think about like who they were and what type they were and what writer would have those kind of themes and it, it made my team like feel extra special and it made me think about it in a different way when I named them and and who they were on the team. So that was just a really fun extra kind of thing that wasn't a challenge really, but it was just a fun extra added theme and made me extra connected to the Pokemon in a different way. That's right. And you awesome. can do that with any uh, Pokemon game, like have a theme like that. <laughs> Not just X, but I just happened to do that. Yeah, back when I was younger, I didn't have much of an imagination when it came to Pokemon nicknames. And uh, maybe that's just something that you grow into as you, you know, mature, uh, or as you start to think about the games in a different way. But whenever I I play these games now, I, and when I catch a, a Pokemon, I'm very, very specific about the kind of name that i'm going to give them because that adds so much to the personality of the pokemon that you're using um and i find that so charming uh and so 
there are some names that I always go back to. Like whenever I catch a Gyarados in a Pokemon game, I tend to use its original name, which I'm not sure if you ever knew what the original Pokemon's uh, name was supposed to be. It actually wouldn't fit into the character limit of the original game, but they were going to call it Skull Kraken, which I think is just such a cool name. That's a cool name, and it's (laughs) fitting because it does look kind of skull-like. Yeah, um, but then there are always these names, like my Chespin I named Lancelot for some reason nice. in order to go with the uh, the knight theming uh, that went with that character. Uh, so I, I, I get where you're coming from, and I think that's an enjoyable part of it too. Uh, however, I do think that demons in Shin Megami Tensei have just as much personality, if not more, uh, just based on their design and the name that comes with them. Too. They totally have personality. And like, I, I kind of hate that they are so difficult sometimes, but it's actually really cool that they, they feel like their own entities with their own, their own intentions and their own goals and wants because of that. Like they feel like fully fleshed out characters more than just some kind of creature you're collecting. Definitely. Yeah, I I totally agree. And that's maybe something that's a part of Digimon that I think is a little bit lost in raising those monsters Mm -hmm. is that they they don't usually have as much of a personality. But I also think that it's it has to do with the strength of their designs and the animations that are present in them, too. For sure. Yeah, I'll bring different things to the table. Yeah, so monster catching games there are a lot out there actually and i think we sometimes tend to forget that it is such a rich uh, sort of subgenre. i can think of a few off the top of my head right now what are they uh, maybe not that i would recommend oh, never mind but <laughs> <laughs> what should we stay yeah, away from again I mean, I've never personally played a monster rancher game oh i was actually going to talk uh, about monster rancher too um because there was some news about it recently coming out, coming to Switch. I think it was Japan only, or was it everywhere? I think it might be coming to America. Coming to too. everywhere. Um, but I only played Monster Rancher 2, I think, on PlayStation back in the day. My friend had it. And I never really played the game, but you could scan CDs or any kind of disc into the game and it would generate a different monster based on it and we thought that was the coolest thing and we would just scan like our like flip books of cds and games and stuff and see what monsters they made and that was a really cool new take on monsters as well that was pretty interesting but i don't know how they'll do that on like a switch version that doesn't have a disc drive it would be cool if like other game carts could do that or digital games that you have in your library but i don't know if they'll add that yeah i i would be really curious but i i do remember that gimmick working very very well for for that series or being a really appealing part of why someone might want to pick them up yeah but i couldn't um, tell you a thing you know, about the actual gameplay like i don't remember at all i just remember scanning cds <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i know so you know i've previously mentioned the dragon quest monsters mm-hmm. uh games which i think they're they at a recent anniversary stream, they did confirm that they are making a new one. So that's something to look forward towards, perhaps. Uh, I have also mentioned Spectrobes, which I personally will stand by. Uh, but I think, sadly, those games are more fun for their monster catching, quote-unquote, mechanic 
which is excavating your fossils uh, of monsters uh, and then reviving them. And the battle systems are actually not all that great, oh, okay. which is kind of sad. And, you know, there is a series that unfortunately has kind of petered out, which I think is a shame because the latest entry looks like the most appealing one yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and was actually set for Switch. It already came out in Japan, but it's probably not going to come over to America. But it's Yokai Watch. Uh, it was very popular for a while, but has kind of fallen off, which I think is a shame. Oh, I didn't realize that it kind of fizzled out, at least over here. Yeah, they had been teasing that they were going to bring that series over. Or that they were going to at least localize the fourth installment, but I don't think that that's going to be the case anymore. Weird, I thought they were doing well, but I guess not. Yeah, well, I think a lot of Level 5's game development stuff has been in a little bit of a limbo uh, recently, which I think is a shame. But are there any other uh, monster-catching games that, that you can think of or might recommend? Uh, I can't think of any other ones off the top of my head. I think those were the, the big ones for me. Well, I do know also that independent developers are really trying to step up to the plate uh, in this subgenre. So you've got games on Switch like Monster Sanctuary, which is kind of a cross between a Metroidvania and then also turn-based monster battles, which I think is pretty neat. And also you have Nexomon, which is a little bit more of a, a loving ripoff of Pokemon. <laughs> I've heard of that one. I've not played um, it. And then, of course, the original Nino Kuni is a oh, monster yeah, catching true. game, and it is one that I love very dearly. But we might save that conversation for another time. So, with that being said, I guess it's time for us to roll for our new quests. It's that time. I'm really curious to see what happens this time because I've been just plowing through, and I feel like I'm due for a low roll, <laughs> and I feel like you're due for a high roll. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, here's hoping. So let's uh, see. But I am just going to say, unless I roll a critical miss and get a one, uh, I am going to try to try my best to avoid uh, this enemy encounter that's at level 10 or at number 10. Okay, let's see. Do you want to roll first? Sure, I'll roll first. Okay, so I got a three, which means I am headed over to an RPG with better side quests than the main narrative. That's an interesting one. Yeah, I have a great answer for this, actually. Okay, curious to hear it. All right, I'll go ahead and do my roll. I'm on 15 now. Oh, you're so I got a ahead. four. Oh, man. Ooh. <laughs> a WRPG that looks and feels more like a JRPG. Oh. Interesting. I feel like this is becoming more of a thing. Yeah, um, I, I would agree. But I, I'm going to have to put some thought and research into it. See, it's too bad, because I would have actually, in some ways, uh, maybe used SteamWorld Quest for this. Oh, yeah, that could be a good one. But we've already talked about it, so you can't use it again. No! <laughs> no, yeah, I'm curious. Um, and I, I would have some ideas for this, too. So I'm looking forward to submitting some thoughts of my own. But I think that's just about going to wrap up uh, our episode for today so uh will would you like to go through our various plugs for the lovely listeners at home for sure you can find our show anywhere you listen to podcasts including spotify anchor apple google and a couple of other ones that i can't even remember off the top of my head (laughs) and you can always 
Find us on Twitter at RPG Podcast. That's R-P-G-P-O-D-Q-U-E-S-T. And we'd appreciate hearing from you what you thought of our episode. If you had any different answers to our responses to our quests. If you have any ideas for quests, we'd love to hear from you. And you can also join along by following our quest board, which we've shared on Twitter as well. And then you can find me on Twitter at CosmicXLibrary. C-O-S-M-I-C-X library and evan do you want to tell everyone where they can find you certainly you can find me on my twitter account at r p g s e b i am often talking about uh, what i am chipping away at uh, and often interacting with your tweets actually a whole lot (laughs) so uh, we will we will definitely be on the lookout for any any comments that you guys might have. I'd be really curious to hear about your thoughts on bad sequels to RPGs. Yeah, that's an exciting topic. But I think that's going to do it for us. So with that said, we are going to head off on our next quest. Onward we go. Onward and upward. Yes, definitely upward. Yeah, yeah I think it's been going up. Yeah. All right. See you guys.